Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Has anybody watched ESPN or SportsCenter lately? What do they have to talk about? Do they just sit there and stare at the camera and kind of look off into the middle distance? I turned on ESPN2 the other day, and they had the the National Stone Skipping Championship on. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. I heard that Vegas or um, online betting is now resorting to having people bet on the weather. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know you have a gambling problem? You're laying, you're laying odds on sleep tomorrow. <laughs> oh, God. Welcome back, guys. It's uh, Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck uh, from North Central College and Dr. Uh, Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey, Nick. Hey. Uh, and as uh, you can see from our Facebook live feed, uh, we have senior legal analyst Tom Cavanaugh with us today as well. Hi, Tom. Great to be here. Oh. It's my only appointment for the entire day as I shelter in place. <laughs> so let's stay on for nine or ten hours. I don't have anything to do after this either. <laughs> what are you guys thinking about? Mm. Um, before we get started, uh, all the usual fun stuff. If you guys have questions, comments, beer suggestions, want to see what we're up to, because um, we're up to so much with all this shit going on, uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at Barstool Paul P O L. Facebook at Barstool Politics, where you can see uh, the live feed of the podcast right now. Um, We're going to do that every week, I think, at this point. Um, So definitely check that out. You can throw comments and questions in while we're recording. Um, We will definitely respond to that. Um, Thank you for the people who uh, showed up last week when we were kind of testing this out. I think it went really well. At least that's what I tell myself. Ooh, we're going to talk about hard kombucha, too, in a a few minutes. the uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast itself, you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Um, review us, share us, like us through there. We appreciate the support. Uh, and then our merch line, you can find on teespring.com. Uh, just, uh, you'll find a direct link on our social channels, so definitely check those out. Uh, t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, um, trying to think of new stuff. Um, we have lots of spare time, or at least I have lots of spare time now. So I'll be thinking of new things. It probably won't make any sense in my cabin fever um, state that, that I'm in. Um, but anyways, check that out. They're, they're, they're very nice. Um, yeah, I, and we have Tom here. We're, we're definitely kind of going to look at the, uh, the coronavirus thing from a, a few different angles. Um, you know, we kind of did it last week to start out with what's what has the past week been like for you guys? It's it's been sort of surreal. I mean, I, I'm I am you know trying to. This is the first week I've been teaching online, trying to get that up and running. 
talking to students on Zoom. You know, my wife and son are both trying to get stuff done from home. So we're all fighting over the computer. We walked to downtown Keene today, uh, just out on a walk. And it's like uh, there should have been tumbleweeds rolling down Main Street. Like all the businesses, you know, have their signs up. It's 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 bizarre. It's a strange world that we're in right now. Mm hmm. Yeah, similar for me. It's been bizarre. You, I, I haven't left the house in four days, uh, you know, since it's it's happened. You know, I've gone for walks and whatnot and, and done all of that. But uh, it's really bizarre. Although you get kind of used to it in a, in, a, in a way that's, I don't think, super healthy, right? You kind of get used to being in the house all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find I'm, I'm, I was looking forward to this podcast so much because you miss <laughs> all of that social interaction, right? The idea of like, having some conversation and talking to people over a beer. Uh, I was way more, I'm always excited but i i think i was uh exceptionally excited today <laughs> tom how about you oak park had one of the first shelter in place orders uh i think in the state and probably almost in the country correct yeah we have our own health department and you might not know this but uh chicago oak park and one other city in the state have them so we're going to talk about too much government not too long from now, uh, Oak Park doesn't need its own health department, but it feels like because we've got one, they found something to do. <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've kind of I've left the house for probably a grand total of 45 minutes over the past five days, something like that. Um, it really it messes with your head. But the odd part is you do go out. And at least around us, there are there are people everywhere that I think are in the same situation. They just need to get out of the house for a little while for their once a day state sanctioned walk, of course. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, but you talk to people, um, you know, in small businesses, we're trying to support any of the the local mom and pop restaurants around here. And they're just they seem completely defeated they're not even mad about it. they're just going we can't you know there's nothing that we can do about this like, we can't even be and we can be mad about it but you know who's there's just nothing we can do mm-hmm. um and then i I've, i mentioned last week my uh my fiance is a, a nurse who works in downtown chicago um anybody who thinks that this is some sort of conspiracy or it's not as bad as people think um you're 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 wrong (laughs) talk to any healthcare worker that is in any way shape or form uh dealing with people uh in an icu setting uh in an er setting um in any sort of hospital setting uh and they will tell you a different story Um, yeah boy let me second that my son's uh an emergency room nurse and it has been uh horrifying uh you know we talk about testing and that sort of thing later but the, the plain reality is what they're doing is unless you show all of the symptoms basically being sent home. Yeah. So uh, it, it's just heartbreaking for them and, and mm-hmm. immensely difficult. So I'm totally with you on that one. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> it sounds like there's at least been some movement uh, from a governmental perspective with uh, the stimulus bill that got passed today. But uh, Bill, can you kind of give us a rundown of, uh, of what's been going on and how we're going to look at this? Absolutely. Nick, you know, we may be quarantined and you sound a little down today, but Barstool Politics <laughs> is not going to let a little pandemic get in the way of our enjoyment of a few good beers and some even better political banter. Wow, you are lonely. I am. <laughs> <laughs> so we thought it might be useful to step back from the daily deluge of pandemic news and take a big picture look at where we find ourselves. Specifically, we want to think about what is the proper role of government during a pandemic? 
is government part of the problem or an essential part of the solution? And it's a perfect time for this conversation because we're seeing a version of that debate play out as we speak. While public health experts, including Trump's own coronavirus task force, are pleading for the public to stay at home, Trump himself is arguing that it's time to loosen the reins and let people get back to work. Just yesterday, he tweeted, quote, our people want to return to work. They will practice social distancing and all else. And seniors will be watched over protectively and lovingly. We can do two things together. And then in all caps, the cure cannot be worse by far than the problem, unquote. So Trump is not alone, as some business leaders, conservative economists, and apparently his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, have argued for removing some of the stringent social distancing guidelines. So we're lucky to have our senior legal analyst, Tom Cavanaugh, to help break this all down for us. Tom, we've spent a lot of time debating the proper role of government on this podcast. A global pandemic offers a unique opportunity to revisit those ideas. Why don't you start us off? Wow. Uh, maybe today I'm not the senior legal analyst as much as the senior libertarian analyst. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, Bill and I have had these conversations uh, many, many times. And, and I often joke at the end of them that government should do as little as possible, as locally as possible, and only when it's absolutely necessary. But I, I thought to unpack that a little bit, because um, without talking about who's doing what right and who's doing what wrong uh, in the, the current environment, it might be nice to think about sort of philosophy of government. So I thought to say four things that libertarians aren't, a couple of things they are, what we think government should do, uh, and then make three observations about how government has made the pandemic worse rather than better. Um, so here's four things we're not. And, and often people say that libertarians are uh, at least one and maybe all of them. Libertarians aren't anarchists. That is, they don't believe in disorder. Second, they are not anti-government. And I guess I want to be clear about that. I think government has a role in this, and I think government has other roles as well, this being the, the virus. Third, libertarians aren't anti-regulation per se. We have a different way of thinking about it than others do. Uh, and fourth, libertarians aren't anti-community just because they value the individual. So I, I guess I want to get those four things out on the uh, the floor because it feels like often the criticisms of libertarianism are, you know, you're just a bunch of anarchists that hate government and hate regulation. You're radical individualists. So you don't give a damn about community. And I don't think any of those things are true of, of serious libertarians. What we do do, and, and maybe this would be the kind of the second thing, we believe in limited government. We believe in free minds and we believe in free markets. That is to say, uh, where regulation is necessary and narrowly drawn, I'm for it. But I think the burden of proof for regulating ought always to lie on government. And I think it ought only to act where they've done careful cost-benefit thinking and they can make a case for why intervening in human life is necessary. Generally, I think libertarians think local is better than federal so that people can address problems in their own ways. I'm anxious to talk about that in a minute because the states have been at the front in many ways uh, of addressing the pandemic. Three things I think government should do, and then three observations about the pandemic to, to sort of start the conversation. Uh, government should preserve and extend rights. Uh, this might be one of the most significant uh, libertarian arguments there, there is, and individual rights, maybe I should say more clearly. Second, government has to recognize the central importance of the individual in American life. Uh, it's been fascinating to watch the different ways that Europeans and Asians and Americans have responded. 
we are much more individualist than they are. And that doesn't matter, no matter whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, uh, or a Libertarian. We all think that way. And last, I think government should protect people, uh, including in an uh, epidemic like this, but very judiciously. So I, I thought to mention three things that I think reflect libertarian critiques of government leading into the pandemic. So we could talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, here's a first example. We've heard a lot about bed shortages in hospitals. And I just want to point out a law that I think is both unnecessary, burdensome, and has caused in large measure uh, the absence of beds. And that's a thing called a certificate of needs law. Most states have them. They exist uh, essentially uh, in a way that says uh, you've got to get permission to build a hospital and prove there's a need to have one um, rather than letting the market make judgments about when, where, and who builds a hospital. So let me just throw a number at you. There's an analysis that suggests that if New York, which is one of the states that has a certificate of needs law, uh, had eliminated it, instead of the 220 hospitals that are struggling to figure out how to address this problem, they'd have 317. That is, the market could bear 317. The certificate of law, uh, needs law uh, has kept them to 220. That's an example of government overreach. It's an example of government, frankly, ineptness. It's in the way rather than facilitating a solution. If you think there's a problem with testing, and I think everybody agrees that there is, Stop looking, you know, sort of at the White House uh, and look at the FDA, which has an immensely uh, uh, burdensome application process. They have to approve tests that have been approved in other Western and Eastern uh, countries. So the tests existed. And one of the reasons we don't have them is our own FDA told people they couldn't use tests from other countries. Um, this, this is really troubling. Last, if you think there's too few doctors, ask yourself about outdated licensing requirements. There's all sorts of research that suggests that the degree to which we license professionals in America does very little to advance safety. Um, just pick one medical uh, regulation, which we've lifted, and that's the ban on telemedicine. Uh, now that it's a necessity, we're letting doctors do, med uh, do medical consultations over the phone. Find a doctor and ask them if they think this is a good idea when the pandemic ends. And I bet you 100% are going to say, in a lot of cases, it is. Get government out of the way so these kinds of things can work. That doesn't mean there's no role. It doesn't mean government's bad. It doesn't mean, you know, regulation is always terrible. But it does mean we should think more carefully about it. So I'll stop there. Phil, do you want to, you want, you're writing lots of stuff down. Do you want to jump in first? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, it won't surprise any of our listeners that I am not a libertarian. <laughs> I, unlike Tom, think that there is a big role for government. And I, so, I, I mean, I think of this, so just to provide a sort of a contrast, and this, yeah. is, this is really interesting because, I mean, this is the sort of debate that happens in you know, political theory to, you know, arguments in, in classes, right? These, these ideas about the role of government. Um, and they're, they're, I mean, some of it you can have, you know, there, there's, data to back it up. But a lot of it is, is philosophical, right? What role, you know, right. how do we, how do we view um, where government should, should uh, step in? So I, when I think about this, I think of the role of government from a very, I, I come at this a little differently in that I, I think of the, a pandemic is the perfect example of when government is incredibly useful. 
because I, I think of one of the so one of the things one of the times when government is most useful is in overcoming what political scientists and economists refer to as a collective action problem, where there is some something that we essentially all need to work towards that is it is good for the whole right some if we all do something it benefits all of us. But for each individual, it's not in our self-interest. To take something that's not related to the pandemic at all, national defense or, or highways, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense for me to pay to have a highway built. I would rather keep my tax dollars or keep my money. Um, but when when nobody's willing to pitch in, uh, we don't end up with you know these large infra infrastructure type projects. And so the government can help compel people right through taxation and whatnot to provide these collective goods when we acting in our own self-interest wouldn't necessarily provide them. Mm -hmm. this, this is a classic example because, you know, the, each person's end of, well, it, it gets a little murky because people, some people are acting in their own self-interest because they're not wanting to get the illness, but we'll talk, we'll come around to boneheads later, right? There are lots of people who are like, uh, who, who, you know, they, they don't feel at risk. Um, so they, they want to go out and with their, you know, with their, their vacations, they want to, you know, companies want to stay open because they want to make money. Um, if we all follow that sort of individual self-interest, we're all going around spreading the virus, making this a much worse problem. And so the government is the sort of thing that can step in and can, can, can sort of shape the collective action of, of a larger group of people. And so this is, to me, this is the perfect scenario, right? Where we need, um, I, you know, I, the the markets, I, I the markets are are great, and and we can see that happening to some extent with testing, where where groups have started to ramp up testing. Uh, but there are times where you maybe don't want to wait for the market to to do this sort of thing, and so having the government kind of uh, stimulate that sort of thing, or again, telling people they have to stay home because you know nobody wants to be stuck in their house for for two months, and so um, stepping in and, and shaping behavior in that way seems like this is the time where people have to be acting in the collective interest. Um, but we don't necessarily do that by by default, and so I that's the you know I I. Um, that's, that's how I come at it. What do you, what do you think, Bill? You know, I think there's a distinction here and I, there's actually a lot of really fascinating things. I think Tom brought up the difference between the federal government and the state. Uh, and I think we've seen a real difference in effectiveness. And it makes me think about not only about the role of government, but the role of good governance, right? So I, I think there are some states that have been doing really good work, right? And, and they're on top of it. And I am glad that those states are leading the charge there. I'm not convinced that the federal government is helping the problem. We can dive into Trump if we'd like, but I, I, there are a lot of times where I think he is actually making this more difficult. So, you know, it's in some ways, it's not just the role of government, but it's it's good governance. I, I've good been point. thinking a lot about the role of the Federal Reserve and Jay Powell, who strikes me as being doing a fantastic job and nobody knows it, right? He is somebody who's been thinking ahead about what's going on. What is the nature of this economic crisis? How can I be creative in creating markets and keeping the economy going in a way that's very, very different than the ugliness that we saw between the Democrats and the Republicans over the stimulus plan, right? So that strikes me as, as good government, and I am glad that Jay Powell is there. You know, I, I don't think Trump's daily press conferences are a good form of government. So, I, you know, I think it's – I generally think that government, especially in moments of crisis, are necessary, but we're seeing – both good and bad examples of that government. 
And the, the, to kind of build off of that as well, the, the other part, you know, to come around to, so I, I, again, like I said, I, I'm not a libertarian, but, but the, some of the warnings about the role of government, you know, there it was a Hungary, right? It was Viktor Orban who has sort of, you, there, there are lots of examples of governments using crisis to consolidate power, right? So that's to come back around to, to what you were saying, Bill, is, is that it's, uh, government is only as good as the, you know, the, 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 the people in power. So good governance matters. But, I, I but didn't so there's, there's so little that, that you two have said that I disagree with. Um, well, that's no fun. <laughs> so I'm gonna, well, I'm going okay, to manufacture a couple of things. I, no, but, <laughs> I, I just, I don't want to get past what Phil just said. Good governance requires good people. And, and the, the, the fact of the matter is, I, I think, People are not inherently good. And to the extent that government is essentially force or power, uh, people try to aggregate it. And I thought we were going to, I was planning to come to the don't let a good crisis go to waste when we got to the Department of Justice. But let's mention it now. Uh, this is government aggregating additional power. Look at the things that got larded into this, or at least at, at press time, were being added to this stimulus bill. Um, collective bargaining changes, wind and solar uh, power tax credits, uh, uh, just gender, race, and identity quotas for boards of directors, mm -hmm. things completely unrelated uh, to a pandemic. But, and I just, I don't often quote somebody, but here's, here's James Clyburn saying uh, just this week that this pandemic, this is going to be a lot like a Rahm Emanuel quote, is, quote, a tremendous opportunity to restructure things to fit our vision. That's not good governance. Mm -hmm. and it's not good governance because it's being engaged in by people that I think have ulterior motives that aren't good. So the mm -hmm. less they do, the less frequently they do it, the happier I am. So I, I'll go ahead, Nick. Sorry. So, I mean, just I, I, I think in theory, everything you guys are saying is is absolutely correct. I think this represents a, a unique situation that we've never really had to deal with before. I agree that government in almost any situation needs to kind of get out of the way to, to make things more efficient. But we know it. there's, there's a, a physical threat to not only the country, but most countries around the world because of this virus. And it was in, in any situation like this, where there is a legitimate physical threat that could um, affect every person around the globe. Um, how do you rectify um, being able to, I, I, I'm, I'm at kind of a, a crossroads between, there's clearly a, a argument to be made that if we shut everything down, if we kept everybody inside at the exact same moment that this crisis would be abated, significantly faster than than is what is occurring right now um but to do that it's government overreach uh but then to your point tom you have these people who are trying to alleviate the suffering of the american people talking about giving 35 million dollars to uh the jfk performing arts center in this bill too um like how is there any good solution to this problem, whether it's less government, less, go less government or more government. I, I, I think this is a rare instance where I, I you're, you're kind of screwed either way. Like I, I, unless you take away people's individual freedoms, at least extraordinarily temporarily, you're not going to be able to solve this problem. 
So how how do we get around this and how do we solve this in the future if it happens again? Well, let's th- think a bit more about the problem that you're laying out there, right? When you talk about markets and market solutions, you know, markets interests are profit motives, right? I mean, there's there's a clear interest that's driving those. We think about, on the other side, government and politicians. I'm not convinced their interests are any more about dealing with the pandemic. It's about reelection, right? So you've right. got right. two, you've got both markets and 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 the, and the politicians, neither of which are really thinking about addressing the pandemic. And so I think that leaves this this gaping hole where you need somebody to to step in. In and say it's in my interest to protect the people. And, and again, I think there are some governors who have done so in a bipartisan way. You know, I think the, the Republican governor of Ohio has been pretty good. I think Cuomo in New York has been pretty good about putting, you know, the people's interest ahead of their own political interests. But that's I think that's fairly rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one, one suggestion, I guess, if you're looking for ways to try and solve this problem uh, are sunset provisions in federal and state statutes. That is, uh, we're still living with the surveillance state that was produced by 9-11. And whatever all of us think are the excesses of that or th- the benefits of it, uh, here we are uh, you know, almost 20 years later with laws passed then uh, that profoundly infringe on American privacy uh, and I'd argue reduce human dignity, but we're stuck with them. Uh, now, some of these things need reauthorization, and that's a good thing. Um, but the, the bigger answer, I go back to something Bill said a minute ago, and that is states have done a good job. Maybe some local governments have good, uh, done a good job. The, the best thing the federal government has done in this set of circumstances is to get out of the way, right? To tell the FDA we're going to let testing take place irrespective of approval. Uh, to tell the CDC, well, they're not a legislative body, but getting the federal government out of the way has been a good thing. So let me let me uh, push back on that a little bit, which is that I I, I think what, when we talk about federalism, I, I think federalism there's some times where federal federalism is beautiful, and there are other times where it's more problematic. And and uh-huh. I tend to view it as a little bit more problematic in this particular situation because back to that collective action problem. We, yeah. we, we see the state leaders who are doing well. We see them who are do, those who are doing well uh, because they're in the news and because they're having to step up because Trump and the Trump administration isn't doing much. What we're starting to see a little bit more of are lots of examples of states doing not well, right? So, you know, Louisiana is not in good shape. There's a number of southern states who see numbers climbing and they're still reluctant to do anything about it. But we don't have international boundaries like we we are in this together. And so, I mean, we have international boundaries, but not between states is what, is what states. I mean. So, yeah. so um, we're all in this together. So if if New York and Washington uh, and, you know, whoever else, Ohio do the right thing, but a number of other states don't and the numbers explode there and we have cross border, you know, free movement of people then then the, it's another it's another type of collective action problem in which we need all 50 states to be taking this seriously if we're actually going to bring it under control. Mm-hmm. And so what we've seen are the you know, the ones who are doing well. Uh, but what we what we've seen less of in the news are the ones who haven't acted at this point and, and don't have testing and don't have all these other things going on. And in the end result, you know, the four of us, regardless of how our states handle this, are going to be in some form of lockdown longer because there are states out there who are not taking it seriously or who aren't handling it because that will drag the crisis out. Or individuals in those states that are handling it well right. that, that don't comply. Yeah. yeah. Right. 
That's right. And the other thing that I, I think about is that there's a responsibility for each level, right? There's, you know, the states should take a certain role and the federal government needs to take a certain role. And and even though the, the Trump administration, I don't think, has been effective, it doesn't mean that they couldn't be effective. And the, the contrast I would I would point to is the difference between Mike Pence and Donald Trump. Uh, now, I don't agree with much ideologically with either of them, but I look at the role that Mike Pence has played and I see a serious politician who is accepting his role and, you know, uh, providing leadership, science, evidence based leadership is is organizing the federal government in productive ways, is reaching out to the private sector. And, and when he gets up for these daily press conferences, I leave being very impressed with the role that he's playing. And then Trump gets up there and talks, you know, about that. We're going to have everybody together for Easter. And I'm under you know it undermines that so i think you can have effective <laughs> government at the federal level and i think pence is a really good example of that again somebody who i would disagree with on most policy issues but i look at how he's handling this crisis and i say i am i'm really impressed with mike pence and not so with the president regardless of what you think of them in terms of policy preferences you you can't help but feel like if marco rubio or jeb bush or you know, John Kasich or even Ted Cruz, like any of the other candidates, if they had won, this would have looked different, right? People who have actually dealt with with government in crisis and, and running these sorts of events. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Bill. I, I think it would look different on the surface. I'm not sure the end result would necessarily be the same. I still think that the local response would be very similar. I think you would still have plenty of bad actors around the country and you would have the international response uh, and uh, the the um, ease of, of travel for international travels, international travelers into the country would still probably be a significant issue. Um, I was talking to a friend whose uh, family came back from India just a, a few days ago, uh, coming into O'Hare, one of the busiest airports in the country, uh, going through customs. Uh, there was no one to test them or ask them about, you know, where they traveled or, you know, take their temperature or anything. Uh, and he, uh, the, my, my friends that berated them a little bit, there are no standards set up still around the country for, for travel. We may have limited domestic travel, but that isn't taking care of, of the, the, the wider concern, the wider international concern. Um, I think that having a, um, a well-oiled cog in a machine that doesn't work doesn't necessarily mean anything. I, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that having another actor in there would have changed that much at this point. So, I, I mean, I, 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 I totally get your point. My, 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 because I value institutions and because I, I actually have a relatively good impression of government. I, I think we have to take a, a bigger view of it, which is that I, I think you're right, but I think that a different person would be, I think taking it more seriously, listening to experts, which is something that Trump is not doing. But there's also a longer view, which is that that Trump has, you know, has has uh, for an, a long period of time essentially undermined. Well, had, had did away with the the CDC's pandemic response uh, team. But even even on a shorter term situation, we've talked on this podcast over three years about how Trump has little by little essentially broken all of the serious people around him till he's been surrounded by sycophants. So even if even if nothing had changed in the bureaucracy. So so one of the things that Trump has done is altered the bureaucracy while he's been in power, but in a shorter term sense the people you surround yourself with and who you listen to really matters. And I mean that's one of the things that came up in 
you know, there's there's all sorts of interesting studies in in the difference between like JFK and LBJ and how they handled things. And so this is one of those where I think, you know, somebody who wants to hear different perspectives and a different personality and who who doesn't feel the need to surround himself with just yes men, I, I think would matter in that. I think so. I, I think a good cog even in a crappy machine, even if you think the machine is not good, I think a good leader of a bad machine is still better than a bad leader of a bad machine. <laughs> Nick, Nick, there's a title to our episode somewhere in there. <laughs> uh, the other thing, I, there's going to be, as we move forward, there's going to be a lot of good international comparative data about governments that have done good work and have not done good work. I mean, we can look at at Italy, what's happened there versus what's happened in Hong Kong and, and uh, South Korea. And we're going to be able at the end of this to see like what works and what doesn't work, what strategies and and states have embraced different roles. Like some have, have taken a more federal role. Others have incorporated the market into it. So it, it, I think, you know, six months from now, stepping back to see that it, that will be an important conversation as well. Go ahead. Well, and I, I was just gonna say that, well, I think we'll see significant change. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that comes up in political science literature is that big bureaucratic, you know, governments, they shift, they all, they change, they don't change often, but when they change is in a time of massive crisis and massive failure. So, you know, post September 11th, there was this restructuring of bureaucracy. We're going to see something after this, right? This massive economic collapse. And, and, I, I don't have a sense of what that will be yet. Maybe it'll be a sort of libertarian approach that government, you know, should should be more scaled down. Maybe it's a different approach, you know, post Great Depression, where you see the expansion of the government governmental enrollment uh, role in in the social state. Uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna have to after this rethink government. It'll be a, and hopefully we'll have good conversations about it. But if nine eleven is is sort of the the most recent comparative uh, picture, government expanded dramatically. And it, uh, I'd argue, at least, it expanded in ways uh, under the guise of keeping me safe from terrorists that are entirely inappropriate. Uh, and, and so I guess I find myself wondering, what will it look like in five years when we have gotten all of what government thinks we need as a result of a pandemic? Well, Tom, and, and I know we're... This is oh, the second ahead. time in this conversation that the, the NSA agent listening in has had to mark your file. So just keep that in mind <laughs> as we move forward. Three, three strikes and I'm out, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it's a serious point. I, at, at all levels, local, county, state, and federal, one of the things that is getting us to where we need to be is rolling back regulations that kept us from being there in the first place. Nurses are uh, licensing requirements are being relaxed. So nurses can cross borders and doctors can cross borders. Well, we should ask ourselves in every one of those circumstances where we have by executive order or governor's order or whatever, relax the statute. Do we need to have it when we come back? Mm -hmm. uh, newsflash, I'm going to suggest to you that we almost always don't. You know, mm -hmm. so just here's the most prosaic of all examples. Uh, it's illegal for a restaurant to deliver alcohol to your house. You beat me to now, it. God damn it. Now, now in Illinois, <laughs> uh, uh, we've decided that for the time being, it won't be. Ask yourself what business it is of governments. Right. If somebody brings me a crowler of IPA along with the cheeseburger I ordered from Grubhub to pretend that they can't ID me or that there's 25 high school students sitting in a living room waiting for that delivery is too silly to take seriously. So I think we should be asking at the end of this thing, what have we found out about the places where we don't need government 
at the same time, and I agree with you, Phil, what do we know about the places where we need more of it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the, there are these moments where you have, you know, Phil, and we've talked about, you know, paradigm changes in, in U.S. foreign policy. But this could be one of those potential paradigm changes where we revisit government. Uh, and I think Tom's right. Generally, when there's a crisis, we always add more power to the government and, and generally the executive branch. But there may be ways where we think creatively about pulling back and what was silly and what really makes sense. I, I hope that's the case, at least. At least I have some hope at the state and local level. I, I'm less less optimistic about that happening at the federal level. Yeah. Well, I mean, we this this is again kind of a unique situation because we see the other end of the spectrum very clearly on this with China, the 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 source of all of this, um, and their inability to present um, a, a factual, detailed, data driven case for what the virus was doing uh, in its early stages. Uh, their ability to to put propaganda out there, um, say that the U.S. is responsible for the virus. Um, I, I'm just looking at the numbers now. They went from almost no confirmed cases, daily increase uh, in cases one day, to over 15,000 the next day, to almost zero again about a week later. Um, you know, it's just it, it's, it's that's good work, Nick. Right. That's really good work. <laughs> It's you know, talk about massive governmental overreach and, and what that looks like in a crisis situation. I th- that's obviously the the far far end of the spectrum. But yeah, when you look at some of the thinking that's going into um, removing some of these smaller statutes and what that means and what that could mean for a, a snowball effect down the road for American society, I personally think that's that's a more beneficial and, and positive outcome. So, I mean, that's what I'm hoping to see. I don't want to be China because they're responsible for that. Well, the, the interesting <laughs> thing about your about your point is that I, I, I Bill, I'm, I'll be interested to hear what you think about this. I have the impression that the perception of China in all of this uh, internationally is quite different than the perception of China in the U.S. So, uh, the, the, meaning a lot of the international community, I, from an, from a, we should talk about this more in depth in like a, a future episode, but um, one of the potential emerging elements of this is that China screwed this up early on, right? And they they did, you know, they're clearly the you know the authoritarian response and the the paranoia to shut it down and whatever. But once they sort of shifted gears, they were pre- they were effective. And what they've started to do now is to reach out. They're sending doctors, they're sending respirators, they're sending medical you know equipment to Italy, they're sending it to other countries, and and you know we I don't we don't think of that much, but that makes a difference in terms of sort of global perceptions. Um, They're vying to be a global leader. And so I think one of the things that shifts here, we're not just talking about a shift in like how we view government in the US, but I think there are going to be shifts in international politics and how people view different players in international politics. And I think that there's a chance that China, despite their early uh, you know, <clears throat> to say issues is to downplay it. I, I think I think there's a chance that China actually might emerge from this internationally in a almost in a better position, in more of a leadership position. Oh, I, I think that's a really, really interesting point. And it, it draws an important distinction between a democratic government and an effective government, right? I think people are never going to confuse China with a democracy, but they may look at that system and say how China responded, how they were able to marshal resources and confront the problem is effective governance, right? And I think the, the it while it may be the case, like there's a there's a you know, there's a huge impact for for democracy and all of that. I mean, yeah. you think about how they I mean, when you look at their 
how they handled testing, how they handled cleanup, how they handled society. It was draconian, but it was effective. And and that narrative will have some appeal, even though I, I am not sympathetic to that that form of government at all or that approach. But in, in some ways, if it's a result-based assessment, yeah. there are people who are going to buy into that. In a world where democracy has been sort of under attack in the last that's few right. years. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Tom, Tom you were, you were looked uh, troubled. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Bill uh, Tilting Communist uh, <laughs> and, and was trying to figure out what was coming next. Look, here's what's going to solve this problem, private industry and the free market. Uh, they're the ones that are going to get tests uh, to market. They're the ones that are going to invent a vaccine. Uh, they're the ones that are going to make uh, this less frightening in the future. Um, and I think we should free the market rather than uh, cap the market. China is not going to invent this vaccine. It's going to be big pharma. I just want to use that phrase that you know Sanders and Warren and all these people have pounded so much on. I'm not defending all of what big corporations do. But at the same time, I'm not going to defend all of it. It seems to me we ought to recognize that there's going to be a lot of places where they produce very uh, important and uh, socially beneficial sorts of things. And, and I think this pandemic is going to be a place where we'll see that in spades. Mm -hmm. hmm. Maybe that's a good way to transition to talk about beer, Nick. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, uh, Phil, you want to start us off? Sure. So I, uh, tonight I'm drinking a beer from Bissell Brothers. Uh, Bissell Brothers is a, a brewery in, I should know where this is, Portland, Maine. Um, and I, they have consistently good beers. This is one I've not had before. It's called So Well Hidden. Um, it's got a nice, pretty colorful can. Uh, and it's an oat pale ale. I had never had an oat pale ale before. I was asking Tom beforehand uh, about it. And so I, I should let you describe it. But you were saying it tends to be a little sweeter, a little lower in, in alcohol volume because they're using oats instead of the other traditional grains. Is that the, the difference? Yeah. Uh, so here's a perfect. This is the best transition of all possible things. Uh, private industry. <laughs> <laughs> In Germany, you can only put four things in a beer, barley, hops, water, and yeast. Yep. In the grand and wonderful brewery scene in America, you can put almost anything in. So we've developed a thing called oatmeal stout, which you've probably all had. And, and it's the oats that give it that sort of sweet, um, heavy feel. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, and uh, putting it in an IPA uh, is a terrific idea. Yeah, it, and, and I think you're agreeing with that. Yeah, it's really good. I, I really like this. It has the the sort of hoppiness and the kind of the flavor of an IPA, but it's much lighter. I mean, I, I don't yeah. I don't even know how to describe it. The color, it certainly is lighter. It's it, and lower in alcohol. Know, yeah, it's like you know I you know longtime listeners know I like a you know a a, a, a beer for when I finish mowing the grass, right? And I don't want anything real heavy. That's when I like tend to go for a lager. But this is like. This is like, you know, it gives you that IPA, but it's a little lighter. It's I, I really enjoyed it. I would I would um, I again, I've never had one, but I will I will look for them in the, again in the future. <laughs> yeah, listen, and in Germany, it's a statute that requires only four things go into beer. Right. <laughs> And that was a really interesting, like, that's an interesting debate for international law, because the rest of Europe is like, you, you can't do that, right? You, or at least you can't, Germany was trying to say that any, that any other beer sold in Germany that had more than that agree, uh, ingredients couldn't be called beer. Right. Uh, and eventually, no, I think it was shit in Germany. <laughs> Keep that in Belgium. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Tom, what are you enjoying? Well, gentlemen, given the exigencies of the moment, I've already had two different beers. 
uh, <laughs> and I'm going to work into a third one soon. Um, the first is my uh, my most recent homebrew, which is uh, a Smash IPA. Smash is an acronym for single malt and single hop. So one of the things you can do that's kind of fun is to get a feel for what it would be, uh, the, the flavors that associate themselves in, in particular with different kinds of malts and different kinds of hops. So this is an a Maris Otter is, is the hop. Uh, I'm sorry, is the malt and uh, Citra is the hop. So uh, I, I'm, I'm happy with this one. Named uh, appropriately enough, Sunshine Daydream, uh, after that wonderful 1972 Grateful Dead concert uh, and lyric. Uh, but then the second one, uh, which calls to mind our president, uh, is uh, from my boys at Transient Artisan Ales. It's called Win Bigly. Oh. <laughs> B-I-G-L-Y. Uh, now, this beer wins really bigly. Uh, it's a huge Russian imperial stout. It's 10%, uh, and it's absolutely perfect for sheltering in place during a pandemic. <laughs> so wait, you Nick- just drank a beer that was 10% alcohol, and you're going for a third? That is, I am impressed. Yeah, my, uh, the, but the one I, the one I brewed is only five. Okay. It's right down there with the PBR <laughs> that, uh, you know, Bill likes uh, to drink. Some <laughs> That's right. I believe Nick's, he's got, he's got PBR garb on today. Is that? I am wearing a PBR <laughs> shirt. Absolutely. Nick, it looks like you are enjoying a mead. Am I right? No, actually. <laughs> no, <laughs> no uh, I am having. So, um, with this, I, I decided not to go to the, the liquor store to get something new. Um, which apparently, if you didn't know, there's an hour in the middle of the day for seniors specifically to go to the liquor store. Hmm. Um, didn't it's an essential really... business. It's an essential business, obviously, and seniors need their booze. <clears throat> um, so I had to to find something that we had here. And my fiance actually had um, a hard kombucha from Luna Bay Booch Company, which is out of Chicago. Um, the first one that I had was a ginger lemon. Uh, I'll just get this out of the way. It's I, terrible. It's I I know. Doesn't it sound? <laughs> I'm gonna tell you now. This is pretty good. <laughs> it's really? it's surprisingly good. Um, it's almost it has kind of a a mead sweetness to it, but it's light and very effervescent, um, bordering almost on champagne. I would say. Um, but the flavors are definitely distinct. You can taste the ginger. You can taste the lemon. Um, you know, regular kombucha just has a, a weird element to it. This is very clean and crisp. Um, and then the and, second one I had was and a, it gets uh, you drunk, and it gets you <laughs> drunk. More importantly, um, the second one I had was a, a hibiscus lavender one. Um, so really boosting the manliness of the things that I'm having. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're on a, what we're on is a podcast going on there? Hey, you're stool politics. It is. Let me tell you something. Zero bar stools anywhere <laughs> on planet Earth are, are right now being sat on by somebody drinking something with lavender, hibiscus, and whatever's in a kombucha. Please. Well, there's nobody beer. at any it's bar stool alcohol. right now, Tom, it's so fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you weren't here to bring us beer this time, so this is on you more than anything. <laughs> um, no, I, you know what? Uh, Realistically, I, I think this is pretty good. And more importantly, they're a, uh, a, a small business in Chicago. They're a small brewery. So, uh, you know, more than anything, I think this is a good product. Uh, definitely run out, uh, get this if you can, um, and, and support, you know guys and girls like this businesses like this that are that are trying to do something different and new um yeah i i, I would recommend next <laughs> week good. nick's yeah. nick's gonna go with that budweiser hard seltzer and give us a review of that <laughs> next week bud light lime 
<laughs> well, I am enjoying a uh, from Half Acre an original Reaper, which is uh, one of their stouts. And I, I am I I know spring is coming, so I'm trying to get as many stouts in as I can. And we've had a whole bunch of stouts that have lactose, and we've been trying lots of really really good ones. This is a simple, straightforward, no lactose, nothing else stout. Uh, and it's fantastic. It has a little bit, you know, like notes of coffee and maybe some caramel, a little bit of coconut. And what I really like about it is that it's uh, the it smells sweeter than it really is. Like, you know, you get this aroma that's great. Uh, it is. I really am enjoying this. Everything that Half Acre does is fantastic. And uh, it's just a wonderful Chicago brewery. So, yeah, uh, original Reaper, two thumbs up for me. Boys, on the grounds that there might be on Facebook a German listening to this podcast, I want to read the name of the next beer I'm going to drink. <laughs> Peanut Butter Cup Imperial Stout. <laughs> Patently illegal where you all live. <laughs> Not illegal here. Here it comes. <laughs> well, on that note, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast or any other type of alcohol that we have on the podcast, um, you can find us on Untapped on iOS or Android. Um, search for Barstool Politics on there, uh, and you'll find all of our reviews. Time for speed round, right? For show. All right. So we're going to let's take a break from pandemics to talk about the Supreme Court. On Monday, the court limited the rights of criminal defendants in a ruling that states can bar in a ruling that states can bar criminal defendants from using the insanity defense. The ruling involved a Kansas man sentenced to death for killing four members of his family. The justices ruled six to three that a 1995 Kansas law eliminating the insanity defense, which bars bars holding criminally responsible, mentally impaired defendants who do not know right from wrong did not violate the U.S. Constitution. Under the Kansas law, defendants cannot argue they were insane or unable to make a moral judgment as an excuse, as an excuse to criminal liability. Tom, I find this one really, really interesting in both substance and the fact that it was a 6-3 to three ruling. Uh, what do our listeners need to know about this decision? This is a really, uh, you're right, a really interesting one. Let's start by saying it's a due process case, not an Eighth Amendment case. So the argument that Kaler made, Kaler killed uh, four members of his family and uh, wanted to introduce evidence at trial that his long struggle with depression uh, reduced his capacity to distinguish the difference between right and wrong. He was barred from doing that because in 1996, Kansas changed its law to eliminate that portion of its insanity defense. So I, I want to be clear about one thing. Uh, there is still a Kansas defense called the insanity defense. Uh, it is just not the one uh, that the court addressed in this case. So a person unable to uh, create in their mind mens re, this is guilty intent, um, is still uh, permitted to plead that in Kansas. So imagine, uh, let's go away from the Latin for a minute. Imagine somebody who is deaf running away from a police officer, and the officer yells, stop, stop, and they don't. Uh, and the officer then arrests them and charges them with uh, obstruction of justice or something like that. Uh, they can't form mens re if they didn't know they were being told to stop. And that sort of insanity defense is still uh, possible in Kansas. Here's what's not. I couldn't tell the difference between right and wrong, and therefore I killed the four members of my family. Now, the last thing that we should say, and then I, and, and Bill, you're exactly right as to the 6-3. I want to say a word about that. But, but the, the, the last thing we should say here is this 
uh, inability to appreciate the difference between right and wrong is still permitted during the sentencing phase. So there's been a lot of journalism on this case that was sort of hair on fire. You know, Kansas just wants to deny there's mental illness. And, and I'm not sure that's true. It's a much more limited ruling. And it simply says you can't defend yourself on the question of guilt or innocence by saying that you can't appreciate the difference between right and wrong. So just quickly for the listeners, then, the author of the opinion is Elena Kagan. And I'm betting that comes as a surprise to most uh, people. The other uh, five probably does not. Uh, Breyer wrote the dissent, and he was joined by Ginsburg and Sotomayor, but you'd expect to see Kagan at that end as well. Kagan took the position that this is largely a state matter, not a constitutional matter, and she rejected the argument made in the dissent that this idea, and this exists, it's an English idea, the monoton rule, um, is, is so deeply entrenched in our law that we can't move away from it. She said it's not, it's a state matter, and states can make their own judgments about whether or not at the guilt or innocence phase, they allow this plea. Really interesting case. Can I, can I ask a clarifying question? I, so I'm, yeah. I'm not sure I've, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around the difference between the two examples you laid out. So one is, is um, I can't have a guilty mind for some reason, right? The other is I don't know the difference between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Why are those not the same? So isn't, isn't, I can't, aren't there ways in which I can't tell right from wrong? Doesn't that impact, in fact, impair mens rea? Yeah, that's exactly the critique that people who don't like the opinion make. And I think it's, a, it's an absolutely plausible one. If, if the idea is that you don't convict a person of a crime unless they intend to be engaged in uh, behavior they know is wrong, then it shouldn't matter whether or not they're deaf or uh, lack the capacity, say, as a sociopath might, uh, to distinguish between right and wrong. Um, this, is a, this, is, this is pushback. Let's, let's say that. Uh, and, and this pushback started in some ways, you might recall the Harvey Milk uh, matter in San Francisco, where uh, the person who shot uh, Milk was uh, uh, acquitted uh, on the Twinkie defense. His claim, and, and here's why it was called that, was that his terrible eating habits had produced in him a mental state that made it impossible for him to distinguish between right and wrong. And I think the difference, Phil, is more practical than legal. That is, I think a lot of people say they just simply don't accept the concept that people cannot tell the difference between right and wrong. Uh, They may have the inability to stop themselves while they know what they're doing is wrong. Uh, But I, I I think this is a sort of nod to an evolving notion in modern America that people know they just do things anyway. The, so I'm just if you if you can indulge me, I just want to read a couple sentences from Kagan's ruling, which I found really really interesting. So, uh, talking about she says defining the price, precise relationship between criminal culpability and mental illness is a project, if any is, that should be open to revision over time as new medical knowledge emerges and as legal and moral norms evolve. Right, and, and she says, which is to say that it is a project for state governance not constitutional law. And I found that really, really compelling. And Uh I guess the question I had for you, Tom, is, is it better to leave that to the states if we're thinking about changing, right? You know, a democracy lab where we let them kind of evolve over time, that's not Uh something that would be good for the constitution to weigh in on. 
Yeah, I think that it is. And, and the court has always talked about the laboratory of the states as a thing that needs to percolate up to them and that they shouldn't preempt with a ruling. You know, one of the critiques of Roe versus Wade is that the laboratory of the states, state trial courts, state appellate courts, state supreme courts, federal trial courts, federal appellate courts, all of that didn't have an opportunity to, to work its, uh, I'll say, magic before the Supreme Court decided the case, which meant they stepped in too soon and maybe arguably stepped in too aggressively. And now you, uh, you know, have a case that to this day uh, engenders incredible disagreement. Um, the second thing to say, Bill, uh, on this is the court almost explicitly said this is not an Eighth Amendment case. It's a due process case. So having eliminated the due process argument, they are leaving open the door. And, and theoretically, Kaler could make, the very, uh, make this claim. It, it is cruel and unusual punishment uh, if I am not just convicted, but let's say sentenced to life in prison or I think Kansas is death penalty state, given the death penalty and not given the opportunity to plead that I didn't know the difference between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And this and it, this doesn't preclude other states from pursuing different courses, right? I mean, so other states have the right to to allow this defense, right? I mean, I think the idea is that yeah. they're going to allow this to play out. Um, yeah, I, I, I am very sympathetic to that. So it doesn't invoke a federal constitutional uh, concern. Wyoming, I, I believe, it's Wyoming or Montana, one of the other Western states, has eliminated, they've eliminated the entire death penalty. I'm sorry, not death penalty, insanity defense, period. So... Uh, theoretically, that would have been a better case for the court to take because they don't make the distinction that that Phil just asked about between mens re and inability to uh, distinguish between right and wrong. States here are are all different. But listen, most of criminal law is at the state level. We define murder differently. We define burglary differently. Um, That's the way the system works. And I think what Kagan is saying is that system's fine with her, at least from a constitutional perspective. Did I can I ask a, a I, maybe you don't I don't know if you know the answer to this. Did all the the concurring justices did they agree with the logic or did they concur through a different logic? So I, my my question is if another state were to go in the opposite direction and say there's all sorts of evidence that you know through brain chemistry and neurological stuff that in fact there's you know people actually have very little free will and so you know the idea is that we're we're mostly not in charge of would would the justices is the argument still that it's still up to the states or does that make sense? I, I, I know that sometimes justices concur, but for different sort of logic. Yeah, I have, uh, I don't know the answer to Correct. that question. Generally speaking, it seems to me, and I've skimmed uh, the whole, th- I've read Kagan's part. Uh, it seems to me that the answer is they all agree. That is the six on that side, that we should leave to the states, the question of uh, pleading requirements in criminal cases in the same way we should lead to the states the elements of particular crimes, uh, and and this is this is interestingly enough that's longstanding law. The federal government doesn't, or I should say, the courts don't tell the states. Uh, here's what murder is, uh, and states are all different on this question. You know, in first degree, second degree, third degree, what the elements of those are. So could they move backwards? I suppose they could, but the more likely scenario would be. They'd entertain an Eighth Amendment argument and use that as a way of curing this if they decide science has moved quickly enough. It is cruel and unusual, let's say, to execute a person who couldn't tell the difference between right and wrong. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a great case.
It really is. Yeah. All right. Let's let's moving on. Staying with sort of legal questions. Uh, the Department of Justice has reportedly asked Congress for a host of new powers as the coronavirus spreads across the country, including the ability to ask judges to detain people indefinitely without trial during emergency situ- situations and natural disasters. Legal experts and politicians on both sides of the aisle quickly condemned the request. Senator Mike Lee from Utah, a Republican, tweeted over my dead body. Democratic uh, minority leader Chuck Schumer wrote two words. Hell no. Uh, in a series of tweets late Sunday, DOJ spokesman uh, Kerry Kubek pushed back, saying that the pro- proposals were made, quote, to promote consistency and would empower judges, not the executive branch. This is a curious development that isn't getting a lot of attention or discussion, but it could have potentially a dramatic impact moving forward. Phil, you trust the DOJ not to abuse its power, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, this is a really interesting case because it goes back to the topic we started with. That's exactly the, right. The, the, the podcast about Mr. Institutions know. here is going to have yeah. to tell us why he now doesn't trust the Department of Justice. <laughs> well, you know, I, the other, to, the other, I, I, I do value institutions. I do, you know, I do. I, 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 good institutions and good government governance, right? To go back to what Bill said earlier, but you know, I've talked about in previous weeks and months or whatever the value of of, of norms and how so much of of how we do government in the United States is just based on good faith, right? That people are actually going to abide by the rules or go along with them, and this is a this is a good example in which I, I you know, I I was I was encouraged by the fact that a number of people across the political spectrum very quickly basically said that this is this is not um this is not going to happen but the the flip side of this and i know this under my, this goes back to your this is a, a uh, you know a, a piece of support for your libertarian arguments uh tom the the flip side of this is you know what if they didn't right there have been lots of times where in the last three years where there have been what it are in my mind pretty clear abuses of government power oh not just the last three years the last you know 20 years whatever and people don't necessarily speak up and so it, it to some extent it reveals you know how much we depend on that and people actually speaking up and acting you know like it matters and so i'm glad to see that 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 plays out i don't i don't distrust the DOJ in general. I do distrust a DOJ with no checks on it, right? And so when there are when when you have uh, you know Congress and others who keep an eye on it and are, you know, again, the DOJ if they need to do stuff differently during this time period, they as we've talked about on here, they can go to Congress, right? They can get permission for those sorts of things. That's the way it should work. Um and so yeah, I'm glad to see that this was that when this was floated there was very quick pushback. Or on a case-by-case basis, they could go to a court. Yeah. The, the idea, though, that we'd produce permanent policies, uh, just well, let me mention two of them. One is uh, that the product of this could be that you could be arrested but not arraigned because uh-huh. in an emergency, you can't go to court. So it would be okay not to arraign a defendant. This is, this is so contrary to the way Americans think about justice that, uh, I, of course, it screamed for people to say uh, something. Another part of it was video conferencing. Now, you might say to yourself, when there's a pandemic, video conferencing is a great idea. Uh, but it excluded the defendant from the video conference, not by rule, but it said it would be perfectly OK to proceed without the defendant. Well, on a criminal case, I mean, again, this is how we're different than the rest of the world. The defendant's there. The defendant's in a suit. The defendant's wearing a tie or I suppose a shirt, a skirt and a blouse. We don't, we don't tar defendants ahead of time, and we make them a part of the process in ways that are important. 
It's a perfect example of government expanding its power unnecessarily mm-hmm. because they don't want to let a good crisis go to waste. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is an interesting one because it, it seems kind of both uh, uh, Tom and Feld made the point. Um, this seems like just such a an, an obvious overreach, uh, governmental overreach. Um, but at the same time, the people who are um, in, in stark opposition to this are the same ones that are putting these bills together, creating government overreach in other places. Uh-huh. So I think this is I think it's 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 a positive in this particular battle. But I think that the war um, just in in regards to especially federal overreach uh, in policy for, through the social safety net, through the surveillance state. Um, th- this is just one thing that, uh, happened to be good political fodder for a, a subsection that, that thought it would be useful, uh, for them. Um, when we don't pay attention to the thousand page bill that just got passed, um, and the, the provisions that are in there, um, again, I, I think it's good that there was some pushback, but I think this also kind of, um, presents the, the, uh, other perspective or, or other point uh, in a light that we need to pay more attention to what's going on behind the curtain, as opposed to these things that are um, so blatantly obvious. You know, I, I feel like it's important to say that this expansion of government power in ways that are too permanent and are unnecessary isn't always a thing motivated by bad faith. Now, I think there were people that post 9-11 honestly thought, absent a surveillance state that was profoundly intrusive, we were at great risk. So, so I, I want to be careful and say that I don't think it is always politicians doing things uh, un, in an unprincipled way. Maybe that's the best way to put it. And I think the same might be true here. It's a, you could make the argument that this was a way of trying to have a good faith approach to uh, how we treat prisoners and, and people who have been arrested. I think in the end, it's going to be a terrible idea and it's never going to happen, but it's not always bad faith. I guess I, I, I guess I don't want to be the one that's marked down as Kavanaugh thinks government always acts in bad faith. I don't. Oh, no, no. I, I, I think that's a really important point. And, I, and I, it circles back to something you, the point you made earlier, Tom, about, you know, the post 9-11 reality of the expansion of government <laughs> and especially the legal establishment that grew out yeah, of that. Right. And I think, you know, you look at, at Dick Cheney and the legal establishment he surrounded himself with. Mm-hmm. I think they had good motivations, but what they did was deeply, deeply problematic. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, they created the surveillance state, uh, the whole torture regime. All of that grew out of good intentions. And so that's why I was uh, to Phil's point, I was really pleased that in a bipartisan way, uh, people pushed back immediately against this. Now, mm-hmm. I wonder whether if it was a, 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 a different type of national security threat. So if it was a terrorist attack, would we fall back into those same patterns? And maybe a mm-hmm. pandemic is different where we're, we're not willing to, to accept that kind of change. But yeah, I'm, I'm like all of you where this is really, really has me worried uh, that in a crisis, if suddenly we start giving more and more power to the institutions, and even if they have good intentions, those powers are never given back, and we right. don't know how future actors will will act upon them. Right. That's, and that's just very quickly, though. Another, another difference might be: what if Eric Holder, uh, in an Obama administration, had proposed the very same thing? My sense is maybe people would feel differently about it because of the person or people who are advancing the idea. And and my sense is that we should have a better way of thinking about these things than well, I trust that guy or I trust that woman. That's a we're going to go with that. 
shouldn't make any difference who it was uh, that proposed this. Bill Barr is not a guy I think that is um, right now widely trusted. Well, that's right. And, and then we have to realize that these these changes will have institutional legacies that will last for a long, long time. Well, and I, I know we need to move on, but the, the part that the thing that keeps popping up in my head as we talk about this is that everybody's opposed to governmental overreach, right? But overreach is a matter of opinion in, in, in terms of what it qualifies as overreach and what doesn't, right? So some people, for some people, you know, socialized medicine is overreach and for others. Libertarians and everybody else do. Uh, we are, I, I just love the line. We're both civil libertarians. We are. Amen. Sounds good. Nick, it stopped recording there for a second. Did you notice yeah, that? I, I, yeah, I, I, I noticed it. I turned it back on. Okay, sounds good. All right, all right. <laughs> So, uh, that's the case. and that was some really, that last two minutes was really good conversation, but that's all right. Uh, all right, let's, let's I'll, I'll try and pull it from the Wait video. Wait a minute. Did, did the part that didn't record, was that Phil saying to me, we're both civil libertarians? Yes. Yeah, we can't have that. <laughs> all right, Phil, say it again. I want to, this is what a lawyer does. I want to make my record here, my friend. Did you or did you not just say we're both civil libertarians? For sure. Yes. Yes. For sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> All right, so let's return to the Supreme Court, where on Monday, the Supreme Court ruled that racial discrimination claims in, contract, uh, in, contra in contracting must meet a strict standard, sending a lawsuit against cable TV giant Comcast back to a lower court for further review. The unanimous ruling written by Associate Justice Neil Gorsuch was a victory for Comcast and, by extension, Charter Communications. Both were sued by African-American media mogul Byron Allen for refusing to distribute his stations. Tom, can you break it down for our listeners what this means and why this is an important case? Yeah, uh, you're, you're tempted to say, oh, well, who cares? Here's a, a cable television provider and somebody who owns some stations that can't get on, uh, whatever. But, but a couple interesting things. First of all, the lawsuit filed against Comcast uh, uh, by Allen was for $20 billion. That's a B, $20 billion is what he was claiming in damages here. And uh, just, I, I don't usually do the procedural posture of a case, but it's an interesting one here. He files a lawsuit alleging that Comcast will not add to its uh, range of stations his because he's black. The trial court dismissed the suit prior to trial on the grounds that he hadn't produced enough evidence to suggest that race uh, was the factor that produced their decision. The Ninth Circuit, which is that circuit that covers California and the West Coast, the most reversed uh, uh, circuit of all of them by a long margin, reinstated the case. And what they said was all he had to do was produce evidence that said race was, and I'm going to quote quotes here, a motivating factor. Here's the interesting and important ruling. Uh, it's a Justice Gorsuch opinion, but it is unanimous. So please note here, Kagan, Sotomayor, that end of the court, they're all on board here too. Gorsuch said you need a clear standard, and the standard is a but-for test. That is, if Comcast uh, decided to put these things on, great. If they don't, the only way to recover is if that decision was made in a way that was different but for race. Uh, so the case is sent back. He can still make that uh, demonstration. This is this is a pretrial uh, set of um, decisions. If he can demonstrate that but for his race, his channels would be on Comcast, he'll prevail. Hmm. He's never going to get $20 billion, but he'd prevail. So it, it has not, uh, uh, you know, contrary to what this guy says, changed civil rights law and all of that. 
uh, it has raised the bar and it has made the evidentiary standard in a, in a race case. And I presume this is true then in a disability case or a national origin case or a religion case higher, but it is clearer. If it is not the case that but for the race, ethnicity, disability, or discrimination, the employer or business person or whomever would have acted differently, then there's no grounds for recovery. So you're so raising it's a huge win for business. You're raising the bar from a motivating factor to a determining factor, right? I mean, it's got to be that it's right. it, the specific reason for this was race, as opposed to it was one of many factors one that of may many. have been right. Because yeah. what Comcast said is. No one wants to watch his channels. Uh, and I, who knows how they knew whether that was true. This hasn't gone to trial yet. Maybe they had market research. So let's say they've got, uh, uh, you know, focus groups that see what the ESN, it's ESN is the network of channels he owns. They've looked at the list and they've said, we're not interested. We're not, we don't want to see it. And then they say, oh, but by the way, and also the guy's black. So let's not put him on. And then let's pretend it's the market research. That would be the Ninth Circuit sort of thing. The new standard would say, even if that was one of the many factors, it has to be the deciding uh, dispositive factor that produced the outcome. <laughs> Phil, you look like you were going to say something there. No, no I was just thinking through it. The, I was thinking through the logic of a, of a but-for argument. The argument essentially would be he has to prove that if he were white, he would – this the, the, the Comcast decision would have been differently. Different. That's right? another. That's a really good way to put it. Uh, yeah, if he was white, the channels would be there. So but that's he, another way of saying essentially, though, that the only. Hmm, it, I'm I'm trying to think through this. Does that mean that essentially that what they have to essentially what he essentially has to prove is that race was the only factor in the decision? No, no. I, it's it's a terrific question. He doesn't have to show that, but he does have to show that it is the dispositive reason. Okay. So there might be other reasons. We don't like the guy. Uh, we've had bad business dealings with him before. And then at the bottom line, but he's black, so we're not going to put his channels on. But for the black, the channels would be on, even you know with the other sort of factors. So the, the curious- uh, this, is, this is a common legal standard, the but for test. And it's common because juries really understand it. Put all the evidence in front of them and say, if you want to prove race discrimination, you've got to prove that but for the race, the the decision would have been different or ethnicity or any other sort of thing. So I I think in some ways it clarifies the law. It makes it easier to apply, but it makes it harder to win. And that's the big deal in this case. Could you speculate? And again, you know, the Gorsuch wrote the opinion, but so some might be surprised that the four liberal justices signed on to this. So what what might be their thinking to say, because, again, it raises the bar. It makes uh, it a more difficult standard to, to suggest that race was an important factor here. Why might they be predisposed to saying this is the right decision? Well, one reason is that the Ninth Circuit opinion uh essentially suggests that if you can put together this sort of melange of different reasons, and one of them is vaguely related to race, then you could put a person in a position where they could win a $20 billion verdict against a business. And I think everybody on the court recognized that this is, this is crazy. Uh, second, I think all of them want a clear standard. And, and I think they're establishing a precedent here. And if you, you know, why is this an important case? because it's going to apply across all the Title VII protected categories, but for whatever, 
there is no uh, victory uh, for the plaintiff. Um, and I, we've talked many times on this podcast about the need for and difficulty of standards. And here's a really good example of the court establishing one, making a clear one, and now telling people across the country, here's the way you're going to try this kind of case and probably everything else that looks like it. That's great. Really, a really interesting one. Um, yeah. Yeah. Should we move on to our final topic? Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm figuring out technical issues. Sounds good. All right. So, gentlemen, this week has revealed that the world can effectively be divided into two camps. The rule <laughs> followers who observe the rules of social distancing in the hope of flattening the curve and saving lives. And the ass clown boneheads who follow no rules and spend their time hanging out on beaches, bars, and apparently the Senate pool. I'm going to narrow in on the rule breakers and ask you gentlemen to determine who is the bigger bonehead, spring breakers? Or Rand Paul, as we've all seen on TV over the last few weeks, spring breakers have swarmed beaches all over the world. One spring breaker told Reuters, quote, if I get Corona, I get Corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let that stop me from partying. Oh, and then there's Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, <laughs> who was worried enough about being exposed to the virus that he got a still hard to obtain test for it. But while he was waiting for the results, he decided to keep showing up to the Senate. He went to group lunches with his Republican colleagues, took Capitol elevators, talked with reporters, and even worked out in the Senate gym. Apparently on Sunday, he was seen doing doing laps in the Senate pool. In the process, Paul turned the world's greatest deliberative body into a sweaty biohazard cruise ship. Um, now, this is a difficult choice. The spring breakers as a group are likely to have infected thousands, yet Rand Paul has likely infected some of the most powerful individuals in the U.S. government. So I ask you, who is the bigger bonehead? Uh, Phil, do you want to start us off here? Sure. Um, I, I, I really spent a lot, because I have nothing else uh, to do. I spent a lot of time thinking about this uh, today. <laughs> and my initial, my initial thought is there's no difference. Like the quote, if I get Corona, I get Corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. That could be Rand Paul. That could have been what Rand Paul was saying. <laughs> Right. That was his approach to life. If I get Corona, I get it at the end of the day. I'm not going to let it stop me. So I, my tendency is to think there's really no difference between the two. Now, here's the then I think about as I thought about it more, I thought the difference is that Rand Paul is what? In his 50s, probably. He's a grown ass man who is an elected <laughs> member of Congress. And With he a medical degree. Yes, he <laughs> should know better. So the standard for Rand Paul is higher than the standard for uh, college students. So I, I'm, I'm going to say he's the bigger bonehead. All right. Uh, Tom, where do, you, where do you stand in this? Billy, every time you put one of these things in front of me, I'm able to say it's an easy no-brainer. Now, uh, here's why that's true. How do you know that Rand Paul didn't intend to make Congress a sweaty biohazard cruise ship? Go, girl. And, and can we just say out loud, I'm not sure that's such a bad idea. It's a nefarious plot intended uh, uh, maybe to uh, disable uh, Congress. So what I'm going to go with is the mindless nonsense going on uh, on beaches around the world as by far the biggest boneheads. <laughs> and let me just say this. Do you know what the people on the beaches call this virus? Hmm? The boomer doomer. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. It's say, the boomer remover, please. Uh, well, I've also heard boomer doomer. Okay. I'm a little sensitive about it because I'm a little older than you people. Uh, maybe older than Nick and Phil combined. So they're dooming me. So here's what I'm going to say. It's a bunch of boneheads. <laughs> Nick, Nick, where do you fall in this grand debate? 
Um, realistically, I assumed uh, kind of similar to Tom that this was a, a deliberate act done by Rand Paul, um, mainly to get them to pass legislation factors so they could get treatment or testing yes. or ventilators quicker. Except um, he voted against that package. Well, that's neither here nor there. The final result. <laughs> Don't he's let's just, split hairs on the phone no, head. Yeah. He's, in the end, he's just an asshole when it comes down to that. But the plot itself was really masterful. Um, there are also some reports that, at least according to, um, I think, his own team and other people, that the timeline that was presented is not exactly accurate um, between the testing and when he was in different places. Um, so we'll leave that up to to speculation. Um, no, the Zoomers are assholes. Uh, so, yeah, they should. Um, yeah, we're, we're talking about a, a global pandemic. And you want to talk about the ineffectiveness of individual states and local and state governments to combat a, a global pandemic and you have people out there on spring break and you can't even close the beaches. Um, yeah, that's a severe problem to me. No, but they're, guys, it's, they're the free, it's the free market. They're just going out and having a good time. Like we shouldn't regulate them. Come on. So, I'm gonna, uh, so the, the listeners don't know, but in the, in the outline, I provided everybody with a definition of bonehead. So we can kind of get down to the, you know, the, the real details here. So bonehead is defined as a poorly behaved, asinine person, usually male, who lacks consideration for others and possesses zero potential for character growth. So I think the definition matters here because the spring breakers clearly in their short-term behavior are the bigger boneheads. But if you focus in on the latter part of that definition, zero potential for character growth, that's Rand Paul, right? The spring breakers, <laughs> there's hope that as they age, they will mature and realize even the guy who was on videos all over the place apologized for his behavior. Rand Paul, no, that guy isn't growing. And the other thing it makes me think about is <laughs> remember his neighbor? So we've talked about this in the podcast, the dispute between him and his neighbor, where his neighbor got so upset with Rand Paul. And again, his neighbor, his behavior was wrong. He tackled him, broke ribs, caused Rand Paul to lose part of his lung. Which is why Rand Paul is at higher risk, because he's missing part of his lung. <laughs> right, yeah, right. it sounds like you're saying this while you're rolling your eyes. Too. No, 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 no. You, you broke can't, his no. ribs. Rand Paul, I hear a butt coming. Uh, and I'm, no, I can no, no, hardly no. wait to hear. Well, yeah, there is a butt. Uh -huh. There is a butt. Everything Rand Paul's neighbor did was wrong. But you kind of understand uh, the guy's motivation now, right? If 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 your neighbors with Rand Paul and he's got coronavirus and he's swimming in your pool, you know you're going to be a little grumpy. So again, bigger bonehead, Rand Paul here because there's zero potential for character growth. <laughs> the guy's in his fifties. You guys are done with character growth. You don't want to change for anybody at that point. What the hell are you talking about? Yeah, no, I'm 45. There's no more change, Nick. It's done. I'm set. <laughs> Can we just say that uh, on the outline is a picture uh, that uh, suggests to me that character growth for the people in it is a distant and uh, I'm not going to say impossibility, but I'm not banking on it. <laughs> so the listeners should know for the outline, I included a picture of, of uh, some spring breakers and apparently Phil Barker and Bernie Sanders were in that group. <laughs> Bill's Photoshop skills leave uh, there's room for improvement. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my god! Um, all right, I think that was. Did the it. bell ring, Nick? I don't know. Yeah, the bell rang. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we're, we're we're done, Bill. You can relax now. Okay. Uh, can we just say two words out loud here? Senate pool. 
<laughs> too much government. <laughs> Way too much government. <laughs> Senate Jim. Too much pool. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. I've said too much government. Too much pool. Send these, send much these pool. guys to FFs. Yeah, with too much pool. Send these guys to a, a health club, right? I bet that elevator is pretty nice, too. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It's exactly right. Oh, my God. On that note, guys, um, thank you for joining us. Uh, anybody who joined us on Facebook Live, uh, thank you. Um, definitely check that out. We're going to try and do that every week. Um, but you can uh, find us on Twitter at uh, Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Um, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, review us, share us, like us through there. We always appreciate the support. And then our merch line you can find on teespring.com. Uh, look for a direct link on our social channels. Uh, you'll find various things on there with uh, our logo, uh, and we'll be adding new things uh, as time goes on. Um, so definitely check that out. Um, Tom, thanks again for joining us. Hey, let me say this. Getting Phil to admit he's a civil libertarian, I have won bigly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, stay safe, guys. We'll see you next week. Cheers. 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 Sit down.